Mike mentioned at the end of service this morning how it was somewhat ironic as this morning I preached on God's wrath, his justice being poured out upon King Herod, how God is always going to punish the evildoer and how no one will will escape God's wrath, how the prideful will always, uh, if they do not repent, face God's wrath. And, and how even though there are those who would persecute us, those who would hold us down just like Herod did the people of God, uh, God is always for his people. And indeed, for Christians, we can take a certain amount of hope, a certain amount of comfort in knowing that God will vindicate his people. Justice is his, vengeance is his, and he will repay and so we see a certain, certain irony in, in stating and in taking hope as Christians, knowing that even as the psalmists uh, say so often, the Lord will destroy his enemies. The Lord will pour out his wrath upon the wicked. And now here in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is instructing us, he's instructing his listeners, and we are his listeners here today, to love your enemies and to pray for those who persecute you. These can be very difficult words for us to hear, and uh, they are made no less difficult by certain amounts of confusion and difficulties that surround certain passages like these. And so my hope is that today as we work through this text, uh, 43 down through the end and 48, that we would hopefully receive a certain amount of clarity, help, and understanding as to how it is that we are to love our enemies, how it is that we are to love in the way that Christ loves and we start, first of all, with verses 43 and 44, where Jesus says this phrase that he has said over and over again throughout chapter 5, you have heard that it was said. Then he goes on to say, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Jesus here, as he is expounding, as he is teaching the people and he is teaching them about the law. Indeed, the Sermon on the Mount is a sermon where Jesus teaches the law in its good and right place. Many have misunderstood when Jesus says things like this, though, when he says, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, as he says over and over again, many people have misunderstood this phrase to think and to say that Jesus is somehow teaching something different than the Old Testament law, that he is changing the Old Testament law or that he is contradicting the law that God gave in the Old Testament. But that is absolutely not the case. I see a few of you shaking your heads no, and I'm thankful because you're right. Jesus is in no way contradicting the law. He is no way undoing the law. In fact, earlier in his sermon, he said, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So Jesus here, when he says, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. He is teaching about the law. But this phrase that he mentions here, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. There's only half law. For indeed, the law that he is referencing here comes from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, in which the Lord says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's the true part of this statement that he gives. That is actually a part of the law when he says, you shall love your neighbor. But nowhere in the Old Testament does God, in this command, in the law, say, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Where does this hate your enemy section come from? This hate your enemy sentence or line in this understanding of the law come from? Well, it comes from the way the Jewish teachers would teach these passages, the way that they would teach the law. 
all throughout this chapter, what he's been doing is not contradicting the law, not correcting the law, but correcting misinterpretations and misunderstandings related to the law. For just as we've seen in other places where the, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, the scribes were, were teaching that you could uh, do certain things, that you could take vengeance on people, that you could take what was rightfully yours, that you could enact justice and take it upon yourself, all these kinds of things. Jesus is doing his best and is writing to correct what these teachers have said, to correct their misunderstandings and misinterpretations of the law. And he is once again here doing the same thing. He is clarifying it, clarifying the proper understanding of the law from what the Jewish teachers had been falsely teaching about this commandment. You see, the Jewish leaders and teachers, the way they would teach this law so often, now certainly we can say there are, are faithful Jewish teachers, I'm sure, that maintained a proper view and understanding of these laws. But largely, the, the corruption that had kind of taken place in the Jewish tradition and even in the temple as Jesus condemned the temple meant that most of the Jewish tradition and Jewish teaching regarding these laws had been somewhat distorted and messed up. And that was no different here. You see, they believed that they were supposed to love their neighbors the Jews accepted that. They had no problem with that. The difference between the way the Jews and the Jewish teachers were understanding this law and the way Jesus was teaching it was with regards to the question, the question that was once asked to Jesus, who is my neighbor? You see, the Jews took this word neighbor and interpreted it only to be Jews. That Jews are my neighbors and I am to love my neighbors as in the Jews but that this somehow gave them a pass or the alternative or contradictory side of this, sort of the flip side of the coin was that means I am to hate my enemies. I'm to love my neighbors, but hate my enemies. But what was Jesus' answer to the question of who is my neighbor? His answer wasn't, well, your neighbor are other Jews, was it? In fact, Jesus doesn't exactly answer the question but rather tells a parable, the parable of what? The good, the good Samaritan, that's right. And forces this man to answer his own question. When he says the neighbor is the one who shows mercy to the other. Who shows mercy in this story? And this guy having to swallow his pride had no choice but to say the Samaritan. You see, the teaching of the law was to be rightly understood, not that love was was to be given and granted only to fellow jews only to our our those who are closest to us most like us those who are most likely to reciprocate reciprocate the love but rather was to be shown to all in fact jesus goes on to say you are to love your enemies and pray for those even who persecute you this jewish misunderstanding of the law was clearly a product of these Jewish leaders and Jewish teachers' misunderstanding of the function of the law of God. You see, their understanding of the law was that the law was the means by which men are saved. That if you are to be accepted by God, if you are to, to have any sort of inheritance with Him and be a part of the promises of God, you must live perfectly according to the law. 
The law was seen as the means to obtain access to God. And we know that that is not the proper application of the law. But with that as your understanding of the law, it would make sense that these Jewish teachers and leaders, if this is their understanding of the law, it would make sense for them to sort of make it more attainable. In other words, the law, as we understand it truly and rightly, the way the Lord gave it, we are to look at it and say, okay, if I'm going to be accepted before God, I have to obey this law perfectly. What would be your conclusion if you were to look at that and think that way? You would rightly say, I have no hope. This is too difficult. This is too hard. I can never attain it. I think the Jews rightly saw that, rightly understood that. And so in order to make it more attainable, more reachable, there had to be some concessions that were made. Love your enemies, or excuse me, love your neighbors. But as for your enemies, they can be hated. Love your fellow Jews. We can do that, right? We can love those who we are most like, who we are around, who who we have commonalities with and who like us back. But loving our enemies is a step farther. In fact, it's a step that if we are all honest, we know that we do fall short in. This is why it's essential that we rightly understand the purpose of the law. See, the purpose of the law was never intended to save anyone. No one has ever been saved by their obedience to the law. Salvation comes only through faith in Jesus Christ, trusting in him. Just as Abraham, before the law was given, before even circumcision, was counted as righteous by what? By his faith. The law was never intended to save anyone. The law was given to show us the holiness of God, to show us his character. The law was given to show us our weakness, our frailty, our inability to ever obtain the righteousness of God on our own. And the third purpose of the law, and I think by and large the purpose that Christ is expounding upon it here, is to give us a picture of, of what obedience looks like, of how to live as Christians right and proper living in light of what Christ has done for us. Jesus presents an interpretation of the law here that's much harder to follow than that of the scribes and the Pharisees. These great lovers of the law, their teaching of the law was easier. It was more attainable than Christ that he was now presenting. He is saying, not only are you to love your neighbors, you're to love your enemies. For example, those Roman authorities over you that hate you so much and that you hate, guess what? You're called to love them. The Samaritans next door, the Gentiles around you, you are called to love them. The tax collectors in your midst who you see as traitors, you are to love them. Is it possible to love like this? Is it possible to love a sinner? Is it possible to love this way and maintain a proper understanding of justice? You see, sometimes that's what gets lost in, in teachings on love and certainly about loving our enemies. Jesus' teaching on love and on non-retaliation as well, 
is never at odds with a proper understanding of justice. That is to say, it is possible to stand in light of the love that the Lord has commanded us to show and walk in and love our enemies and love people around us in this way, while at the same time be committed to punishing evil, being committed to seeing evil and wrongdoing, having justice served upon it. Never once is God's teaching of the, the way of love intended to contradict our understanding of justice. That is to love other people is not just to let them do whatever they want. It's not just to let them sin, to let them walk in evil and commit all kinds of wickedness. That is not a right understanding of love. And if you think it's hard to, to sort of live in light of both of these two things, let me give you a practical example of this kind of, of a kind of a picture of what it means to love and yet stand for what is right and stand for justice. If you're a parent in here today, a parent who disciplines your child, then you already have a sense of this kind of dynamic. That is to say, a parent who disciplines their child, and that should hopefully be all parents, to discipline a child is difficult. It's a show of justice. It's a judgment. And it's hard. And certainly it might seem to some that there is a lacking in love on the part of those who would punish. But every parent in here knows that there is no, there is no contradiction here between the need to punish and exercise justice when wrong has been done and the love that you have for that same individual. As parents, we love our children even as we discipline them, don't we? Just take that example, that idea, and extrapolate it out. I know it's way harder when you're talking about people who aren't your children, who you're not related to, who have wronged you and committed evil against you. And certainly I'm not claiming that it is easy, but we definitely can see that it is attainable. We can see it in the life of Christ, who forgave those around him even as they wronged him and committed such evil against him, who died for his enemies. Unless you sit there thinking, well, I'm not Jesus, right? Think also of the example of Stephen. What did Stephen do as he was being killed, as he was being martyred? He said, Father, forgive them. He pleaded on behalf of his murderers, of those who were killing him, out of his love for them. This kind of love we are called to is indeed a difficult and radical and indeed impossible kind of love to enact perfectly. And yet this is the kind of love we're called to. Verse 45, we read this. So that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. We see here the importance of loving our enemies in this way. Because in this way, we show that we are sons of God. This term sons of God here, as it's used in, in other places in the scriptures too, is, is rightly understood, not just with regards to our adoption. Not to say that if you love your enemies, you will be adopted as sons by God the Father. But rather to say, just as sons of earthly fathers, how are they known? 
usually because of the way they imitate their father. He says we are to be, he says, so that you may be sons of your father or imitators of your father who is in heaven. That we were to be imitators of God. This is the same sense in which Paul uses the word in Ephesians 5.1. He says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Because children are oftentimes imitators of their parents, aren't they? I can tell you right now, there's no doubt that Elijah is my son. And I can easily tell because he's so argumentative. That boy could argue over anything. And he's right some of the time. It is very, very humbling to engage in an argument with a four-year-old only to find out that he was right. It happened to me recently. I'm going to tell you a quick story. We were driving. We, uh, this was about a week into his time at ECS preschool. And every time we would leave preschool, he would see kind of over the trees out near Crossroads, there was a water tower and then another dome-shaped thing. And he said, Dad, look, there's two water towers over there when they were kind of right next to each other. I said, no, 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 buddy, there's not two water towers over there. One of those is a mosque. There's a mosque out kind of on that part of town as well. And he said, no, Dad, those are two water towers. And I said, buddy, no, they don't put two water towers right next to each other. One is a water tower, one is a mosque. And literally every day for about two weeks, he would say, there's those two water towers, Dad. And I'd say, no, there's, there's only one water tower. And I would argue with him just like he was arguing with me. And finally, one day, after two weeks of this, I said, do you want to drive over there by those water towers so I can show you that there's only one water tower? He said, yeah, let's go. Let's go. And so I said, all right, let's go. And we drove over there, made a couple turns, and then drove between two water towers, one on either side of the road. And he said, see, Dada, it's two water towers. And I was just furious and somewhat humiliated. And I'm like, yep, you're right. That's two water towers. Flabbergasted. One for Chandler and one for, for Evansville. Bush blew me away. Blew me away. But there's no doubt about it that he's my son because he acts just like me in many cases. He imitates me. That's what it looks like. That's a part of what it means to be a son or a daughter is that we imitate our parents. So we are called here to love our enemies. We are called to love in a way that imitates Christ, in a way that, that does not show partiality. In a way that we show grace and we show benevolence, a sort of benevolent kind of love on both the righteous and the wicked, on both our brothers and sisters in Christ and also the world. That we are to love even those who hate us. Because that's the way God loves too. He says he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. In other words, the very things that the, that the people need in order for their crops to grow in order to have life for the sun to shine and the rain to come, God shows his love and his grace in that he allows the rain to come and the sun to shine on both the righteous and the unrighteous, on both the just and the unjust. So we too are to show love and grace and compassion to all those around us, even those who hate us, even those who aren't going to show it back to us. We are called to show them that kind of love. The call goes even deeper than we realize, certainly deeper than Jesus' initial listeners realized. In verses 46 and 47, he says, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Now, first of all, this would have been a little bit of a... This would have taken this Jewish listeners back a little bit because he just compared them to tax collectors. These who they equated to dogs and prostitutes and Gentiles. These who oftentimes were even barred from the synagogues 
he has now just compared his Jewish listeners, his Jewish audience to tax collectors. Saying, okay, so you love those who love you back. You love those who you know it's going to be reciprocated. Guess what? Even the tax collectors do that. Even those who you consider to be the most wicked, the most vile, the greatest offenders, even they do that. How are you any better? Indeed, tax, collect tax collectors were rightly known with this kind of reputation. I know we've talked about it before, but it's worth stating again. What is it that made tax collectors so despised by the Jews? Well, it was a couple of things. It was, first of all, the fact that every time they, they saw a tax collector, they were reminded of the fact that they were, in essence, in bondage, that they were underneath the thumb of the Roman government. For these tax collectors were, were men who were, who were taking money, taking, collecting the taxes from the Jewish people to give to the Roman government, the governor, to give to the emperor. And so there was, first of all, that fact that even the, the collecting of these taxes was a reminder of the fact that they were underneath the authority of Rome. But beyond that as well, the position of tax collector was one that was extremely prone to abuse and to scandal. Because the way tax collecting worked in that time was that a tax collector would have a certain quota. Oftentimes they would get the job by, by making bids, saying, I can give this much, I can collect this much money to give to the authority. And the authority said, all right, you need to bring me this much. But it was up to the tax collector to decide how much to actually gather, how many taxes to actually bring in. And whatever he brought in that was above the amount that was to be given over to the authorities was his for the keeping. You can see how this is a position that would be prone to abuse. And it oftentimes was. Even the most well-known tax collector probably in the scriptures, Zacchaeus, admitted that he had done wrong. That he had abused the people who were underneath him in this way by stealing from them, by taking more taxes than he was supposed to. And so we see here that they are called to love in a way that is different from the tax collectors. So he says then also in verse 47, and if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Again, we see here another sort of insulting word comparing them to the Gentiles. Now, it might seem strange to us, this idea of a, of a greeting. He says, if you greet only your brothers, you are, are you, what more are you doing than others? But the idea of a greeting in this day and age, in this culture, was very different than us. It's not like we walk past someone on the street and we say, hey, peace sign, some, you know, chin up thing or whatever. Or if you're in the south, a hat tip, I don't know. It's not the same thing, right? Greetings in many of these cultures, especially in certain oriental cultures, were much more intricate. They were much more involved. And therefore, they were not just given to anyone on the street, but they were only given to those who you were seeking to bestow honor on, to show grace, to show favor to. I think the term salute, which is another way this is sometimes translated, salutation or salute, when we think of a salute, what do we think of? The military. We think of the military as showing up respect and honor and recognizing of the position to which you are standing in front of. That's a similar way that we are to understand this, this greeting. This is why John later on says that we are not even to greet false teachers. Because the greeting was a showing of honor. It was a bestowing of grace and honor upon others. And so what is he calling them here to do? 
he is saying you are to love more than just those who love you back, but even those who hate you. He says you are to not only greet your brothers, show them honor, show them respect, but you are to show respect to all, even the Gentiles, even the tax collectors. In other words, your love, your favor, your kindness is supposed to exceed that of the Gentiles, exceed that of the world. And in that way, what do we do? In that way, we imitate Christ. Finally, in verse 48, he says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. This is the main idea. This is the purpose that he is saying all of this about love so that we might imitate our heavenly father. You must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Now, the word perfect here needs to be rightly understood, needs to be clarified. He's not saying that you are to be sinless. For indeed, we all know that is impossible. That doesn't mean that shouldn't be our aim. That doesn't mean that shouldn't be our goal. But the idea of perfect here, this word in the Greek is teleos, is oftentimes, in fact, more often than sinless, and a sort of moral perfection. The idea being communicated here is a type of maturity or completion. It's oftentimes in Greek writing a word used to describe, for example, a machine that is in working condition. Or a tree that is in good health. Or a man who is mature. The idea being that you are to be complete, that you are to be mature, that you are to be in good health, in good working order in these things specifically as it relates to love, that we are to imitate our father, that we are to be mature and rightly ordered in our love, in our benevolence towards the world. Why? Because we are to be imitators of God. We understand then that for believers, love is a marker of maturity. Love is a marker of our growth in Christ Jesus. You see, if you find that you have no trouble loving your family and your close friends and those who you share interests with, but for the people that maybe you don't like as much, for the coworkers who you maybe would rather not work the same shift as them or work next to them, you find that it's very difficult to show them any kind of kindness, any kind of grace, any kind of love, then I'll tell you to take stock of your maturity, to take stock of your completeness in Christ, to take stock of how it is that Christ loves. For indeed, he loves like this. And his love is demonstrated in Christ Jesus. That while we were still sinners, he died for us. Jesus is laying out for us here instruction. Instruction for believers on how we are to live the Christian life. On how we are to be holy. On how we are to be sanctified. He is not laying out for us a standard by which we are to be saved. Indeed, church family, we need to be clear about this. Unlike the legalistic perspective of the Jews at this time, we need to rightly understand the purpose of the law that Jesus is giving, that he is not saying if you are perfect, sinless, or even perfect in love, then you will be saved, but if you are not, you are doomed to hell. He is giving us an image to follow. He's giving us a picture to follow. He's giving us an example. And that very example that we have in Christ Jesus is why we can have confidence to pursue love is why we can have confidence why we can have hope even when we do fall short because christ's love his which is perfect in all of the ways 
is such that he loves us even when we fail, even when we fall short, even though we still oftentimes, even today, act like his enemies. And that is the love we are called to walk in, we are called to imitate as we live in this world, not just with our brothers and sisters. And for some of us, even that is hard, isn't it? To love the people around us in our church, in our families. And the Bible says we are to do even more than that. We are to love our enemies. It's a message that we've heard over and over again. One that none of us is unfamiliar with, but yet one that none of us does well. So I would encourage us today, and, and we're going to include in this in our time of prayer after this, that we would ask the Lord to grant us the Holy Spirit to walk in this manner, to love the way Christ loved in a radical kind of way so that we might be to the world a picture of Christ, so that the world might see us and know that we are sons of our Father in heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray as we come to this teaching on love that you would strengthen us in it. Lord, it is always convicting to me to hear the call upon Christians, how you have called us to love, not just each other, but even the world around us, and how woefully short we fall. Lord, I pray right now that you would forgive us, that you would forgive us to, for not loving the world around us well, for not loving our brothers and sisters well, and in that demonstrating